0: From the book of Malachi, chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. I will send my messenger, who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant, whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver." He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness, and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord, as in days gone by, as in former years. The word of the Lord. From the book of Philippians chapter 1, beginning with verse 3, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel for the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart, and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and be blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The word of the Lord. Will you stand with me for our gospel reading? From the gospel according to St. Luke, beginning with verse one of chapter three. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar... When Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Eturia and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. The gospel of the Lord. You, Lord you may be seated. Good morning, everyone. I like to say on days like this, with the weather the way it is outside, that um, you guys must be the real Christians (laughs) because you came out on a morning like this. But we are so glad that you're here and uh, glad to be with you in this season of Advent. Uh, Last week, in the first week of Advent, we talked a lot about judgment, which those of you that have not observed Advent much before, that might be kind of a surprise to you. (laughs) Sometimes we expect around the Christmas season to come in and hear the stories of the baby Jesus in the manger and the shepherds and the magi and all of that comes, it all unfolds over time. Um, But Advent is a season of judgment. Uh, Advent begins in the dark. In order to truly celebrate the rejoicing, Uh, that we are a weary world rejoicing. We have to first recognize that we are a weary world, (laughs) that our world is weary. In order to sing, chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother, and in his name all oppression shall cease. We have to realize that there is still oppression, that there still are chains, right? Without the revelation of God, our world is broken, that we're dependent, that we're in need We talked about this idea of judgment though, as maybe different than you've heard judgment before, that judgment is this sense of revealing. Judgment is something that leads to justice. Judgment leads to justice. So we all long for justice. We hear that so much in our culture now that we want justice. We want justice made right. We talk about that a lot. Um, If only justice was uh, divvied out in this situation, but we don't often talk about judgment. (laughs) Judgment is the thing that leads to justice. Advent is the season where we get in touch with our denial, with the places that we have said, okay, everything's fine, everything's right, I don't need anything else. It's a season where we long, we, we join with the world that is broken and aching and longing, and we look at that brokenness and aching and longing in ourselves, and it's the season where we long for wrongs to be made right in the world and in our heart. Today, I wanna talk about the response to judgment, which is this call to repentance. Um, so it's always funny when I'm preparing a sermon like this and I'm like, okay, today we're talking about judgment and repentance, right? Like, um, but I, I hope that we can see judgment and repentance in maybe a different light than we've seen it before. This is the call, repentance, to fall on your knees. Oh, hear the angel voices, right? It's this call to change, to hear the gospel, to hear the good news of God. Throughout Israel's history, there have been prophets who have been raised up to remind Israel of who they are called to be of who they are, of who God has called them to be, of the places where they've gone astray, where the places in their life that are crooked. In fact, that's what the word wicked means. Have you ever heard that word before? It is this idea of something being bent. So if you have um, like wicker furniture, if you've ever had that before, it's this idea of furniture that is like twigs that have been bent, right? They're off course, they're off track. We know in our hearts, we know there's wicked out there, okay, we talk about that a lot. We know that there's wicked stuff out there and we want justice for that. We know that those people, (laughs) you know whoever those people are to you, that those people are wicked. So we want them to be fixed. So whoever it is, the terrorists, the bad guys, the propagandists, those with an agenda, those who work for the system, whatever it is for you. But Advent is not Advent if we just long for judgment for them, for the others. Advent is about inviting and revealing the healing power of God's presence to call us to repentance, to judge our hearts, to reveal our hearts. Again, judgment, not condemnation. Judgment, revealing, showing us what's broken, showing us what's sick. All of us need to be called to repentance. All of us time and time again move towards broken things in our lives instead of towards things that lead to wholeness. The godly and the ungodly reside in each of us in our hearts. So the prophets, what they do is they wake us up to that reality. So prophets come on the scene and many prophets in the Old Testament, if you read them, are harsh and are weird. So if you read the prophets in the Old Testament, these are strange dudes, okay? Like they're odd dudes. They often uh, eat weird things. They live weird places. They say strange, like not really great things. They use language and imagery that would make people uncomfortable. And in the Old Testament passage today, we have this prophet Malachi. And he speaks, he's prophesying about this messenger of God who is coming, and he uses this imagery, the imagery of a refiner's fire and of a launderer's soap, okay? Refiner's fire and launderer's soap. He is speaking about this prophet Elijah, okay? So if you're familiar with the Old Testament story, you know this great prophet Elijah in the Old Testament who never really died. Really weird story. He actually goes up in a chariot, fire into heaven. He never really dies. So there's this hope among the Jewish people and there still is today. There's this hope and this longing that one day Elijah will return. And when Elijah comes back, that's going to be the beginning of God's great return of putting things right. Okay. So Malachi is talking about one day there will be Elijah who will come and he will tell us that the world is about to be made right. That God's people are about to be restored. Well, what's so interesting about that is the description of John the Baptist in Mark's gospel is the same as the description of Elijah in second Kings. So it would be obvious to the, the readers, the original readers of the New Testament that John the Baptist is this new Elijah. He is the one who's come on the scene to proclaim that God is about to put things right, that the new age is about to dawn, okay? So John the Baptist is this new Elijah proclaiming a new world arriving in Christ. Malachi uses this image of the messenger who he says will refine like fire or a launderer's soap. I don't know, um, how many of you grew up in church? Yeah, okay, a bunch of us, right? Um, But growing up in church, I, I was used to hearing fire and judgment go together, okay? I heard that a lot. I don't know if you did, but they were natural. So the idea was in the church growing up that if you don't accept Jesus, your only option is burning, okay? So that was kind of end of the story. Uh, fire was punishment, mostly. The idea uh, of that comes to us mostly through works like Dante's Inferno um, and through the great awakening preachers like John Edwards who preached sinners in the hands of an angry God. Um, this kind of language is burning as punishment. What became popular in our culture kind of through that. And so most of the time in churches, unfortunately, whenever we hear about the fire of God, we think of it as punitive rather than anything else, okay? Um, now, I'm not sure if your town had one of these. I think most towns did, but our town around Halloween time had a Christian haunted house. Anybody familiar with these? Okay. I used to think it was something unique to my town, right? It was something only we did. And then I found out like every town in America had one of these things. <laughs> um, but the sole purpose was the church was using this to scare people away from hell. That was kind of the idea. And ours in our town was called the nightmare is what they, what they called it, right? Um, Now, this is one of those times I was thankful for parents who were deeply committed to our church, but parents who were also therapists. Um, Because even as all my friends were going to this place that promised to scare the hell out of them, okay? My parents would go, yeah, I don't know about scaring people to accept Christ. That's probably not the healthiest thing to do. So in certain corners of Christianity, we we think about fire this way. We think about fire as punitive, as punishment. Fire burns, it's negative, and we stop there. We don't think about fire in any other context. But do we forget that fire as an element of creation is actually a good thing? Think about that. Fire is a good thing. The biblical imagery for fire has more to do with purification than it does with punishment. So if you read the Bible, there is some punitive element there, but most of the time that we hear about fire in the the New Testament and in all of the scriptures, it has to do with this sense of refining, of making something pure, of making something right. It's where impurities are dealt with once and for all. It is burning away those things in our world and in our lives that aren't pure, that aren't right. Of course, fire is so powerful that in the wrong context, fire is devastating. We think about those affected by the wildfires in California and we grieve with them. Um, But the fire that Malachi speaks of here is God's fire. This is a kind of judgment that reveals and purifies. Light reveals, it purifies. It's not punitive in that way. And sure, that's not always comfortable. Um, that's why it's appropriate for passages like this in Malachi's gospel when he says the refiner's fire for us to go, whoa, that is harsh. That's a big deal. Like um, if you've read the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, Aslan, um, this God figure who's this lion and the children ask the beaver family, they say, well, is he safe? And they all laugh, they burst in laughter and they say, well, of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's good. Fire is powerful, that God's presence is powerful and burning away the impurities, but, and no one's sitting around going, oh, yay, I get to go through purification, right? But it's at the core of that refiner's fire is that the refiner is good, that he wants our best. The end result is different than the church that I grew up in. Our God is always the one who ultimately heals, who makes things right. So listen to me today. When God stirs in your heart about your sin, about insecurities, about fear, about anger, about habits, when he calls you to repentance, the purpose of that is not condemnation. It's not ever condemnation. It's not that you are bad and you better feel bad about yourself and you're shameful and you can never be used by God. All of those messages are not helpful. Those are cultural messages. Those aren't God's messages. God calls us to repentance out of his great love for us. God calls you to repentance out of his great love for you. We have to remember that. Can somebody say amen this morning? John the Baptist is this really important character in the biblical story, like really important. We often um, skip over him. Like he doesn't seem really exciting to us. He, but he's this forerunner. He's this voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. And yet, he kind of enters the Christmas story in an unexpected way and an uncomfortable way, all right? So we've got this nice, you know, shepherds and magi, and we've got Mary and Joseph and this, we've created this picture that's kind of pristine and, you know, perfect. And then John the Baptist shows up and he's like, repent ye therefore, right? Wearing his camel's hair and eating locusts and honey. John the Baptist seizes Advent in the first couple weeks of Advent, We like this image of the baby Jesus and Mary. We should like that. We should, we will talk about that more. But John the Baptist feels strange to us. He's not on a lot of Christmas cards. Have you noticed that? (laughs) My daughter has an Advent calendar. He's not on there anywhere. I always thought that would be, could you imagine if you sent out a Christmas card with John the Baptist on the front of it (laughs) and it just said, repent, really big on it? Like, it's like, well, haven't you read the Christmas story? Or in the Advent calendars, I always thought if at least he had just one day, All right, if he had, John the Baptist had one day and instead of chocolate, you get a locust. That that might be cool, but I don't know that it would sell real well. So, but if you had this Christmas card right on the front, you've got this scraggly haired guy, he's wearing camel skin, repent for the kingdom of God is near. John kind of ruins the meek and mild Christmas story. He kind of messes with it. He bursts on the scene abruptly. And Luke has already told us a little of his backstory. So John the Baptist's birth involved divine intervention. John's parents were Zachariah and Elizabeth, and they're an older couple. And they've been unable to have children. Unlike Jesus's parents, John actually kind of comes from a holy man lineage because Zachariah is a priest, okay? And yet John's birth, it's hilarious. John's birth, so he's born to a priest, but his birth involves the priest shutting up. So the priest can't say anything. It's the silencing of the priest, which I think is a bit comical. I think Luke kind of plays this up, that, that John is born not because Zechariah is super holy and he does a bunch of things. And of course he's a priest. And so this holy man would come forth you know, from a priest. No, it involves, yes, he's coming from a priest, but that priest really can't have anything to do about it. He can't speak, he can't talk, right? So he says, the angel says to Zachariah, when Zechariah struggles to believe the promise of this child who's to come, the angel says, hey, you're gonna need to be quiet for a while. And he makes him unable to speak. Even when powerful men play a part in God's story, they must do so from a place of humility and weakness. If you read that in the scriptures, any powerful person that is used in God's kingdom is never used because they're just so great. They're used in their weakness. They're used in their humility. Luke couches the entrance of the adult John the Baptist into the story in the context of Roman power. So he tells us who these Roman uh, leaders are and all the powerful people in the world are. That's kind of how he starts this section. So he says, Tiberius Caesar is emperor, Pontius Pilate is governor of Judea. That's where Jerusalem is. That's where the temple is. Herod is the governor of Galilee. That's where Jesus did most of his ministry. And that guy's brother runs uh, Eturia and Trachonitis. A guy named Lasanias is Tetrarch of Abilene. That's in Texas, as you know. Then then we get to John the Baptist, okay? That was a joke in case you guys didn't know (laughs) Um, we get to John the Baptist and Luke presents a subversive message to the ruling class that there's a different kind of power on the scene. Okay, here's all the leaders. Here's all the Roman leaders. Here's who the high priests are. And now I wanna talk to you about a different kind of power. I wanna talk to you about someone else. So John's role here as he comes on the scene is to proclaim the reversing of the world, the coming change in the world, the coming healing. Fleming Rutledge, who I told you last week, um, I'm really dependent on her work on Advent. Um, she's an Episcopal priest. She's 81 years old. She's one of the first women ordained in the Episcopal Church, and is brilliant. Some people consider her the greatest preacher of our time right now. Um, but she says this about his about John the Baptist's arrival: His appearance on the banks of the Jordan River means that the kingdom of God has begun. The wickedness of this world is truly doomed. The Lord of the universe is about to step on the stage of world history to reverse its course. So we have these powerful people that Luke presents and then he says, but I'm gonna tell you about a different kind of power. I'm gonna tell you about the world's reversing, the world's turning upside down in this one who's about to come on the scene. Advent is this sense of calling out, of waking up. Sometimes we need a splash in the face, we need people like Malachi or John to remind us of who we are, to remind us of what is true when we accept all the counterfeits and all the false stories. John is calling Israel to the faithfulness of their God and the ways that God has invited them into covenant. He's calling them to remember who they are, to remember their identity. And so his calling is this, prepare the way for the, way for the Lord, make straight the paths, Because he says, when he comes, every valley will be filled in. Every mountain or hill will be made low. The crooked roads will become straight and the rough ways smooth. And all people will see God's salvation. Some of you, this might be familiar to you, not just in Isaiah, who he's quoting here, not just in John the Baptist, but also in a modern day prophet, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King. In the I Have a Dream speech, he quotes this. He says, Every hill and mountain will be made low. All the rough places will be made plain. I can hear his voice. All the crooked places will be made straight and the glory of the Lord will be shown and all flesh shall see it together. This is the constant cry of Advent. This is the constant cry of our culture. Lord, for things to be made right. The world is ruled by so many broken powers. Lord, make this right, make this whole. Today, we're called to remember God's faithfulness and to wake up. We're called to wake up from the paralysis that we experience because of fear and anger and shame. In the midst of all that's swirling around the people of God, we are called today to get to work. John Calvin called John the Baptist, a lantern which shone in the front of the Son of God. This idea of light, of revealing, of calling out. John the Baptist was really well-known at his time. In fact, I didn't know this until this week, but we have more extra biblical evidence of John the Baptist than we even do about Jesus. We have a lot about Jesus, but more is known culturally about John the Baptist than even about Jesus. He was kind of famous at his time, but John's entire life was for one purpose. He lived his whole life for one reason, one purpose, to point to somebody else. Can you imagine that? So he's famous in some sense, but his whole life is to point to somebody else. And in that way, he's a model for all of us. That the call of a Christian is to always be going, it's not us, it's over there. (laughs) It's God, it's Jesus. It's not us in and of ourselves. It's a constant pointing away from ourselves. And this might be the reason why Luke begins this section by pointing out all the authorities of the day. He's contrasting these two kinds of power. The first, all the Roman power, might be what Martin Luther called right-hand power. Okay, right-hand power. It's power that we know, power that we see, power that's obvious. This is how Rome ruled through brute force, through oppression, through conquering. And Luke shows us here that he also believed this is how the Jewish leaders were ruling at this time. And this is why the high priest is mentioned here. The right-handed power is power that bullies, power that has to constantly say, I'm the powerful one, right? I'm the ruling one, that's right-hand power. Right-hand power, though, is always vulnerable. It's always vulnerable because it can always be overcome by a stronger right hand, okay? So think about that. So like, if, if I'm really strong and I say, this is, I'm a powerful one, but then somebody comes along who's stronger than me, I can always be conquered. I'm always vulnerable in that way. So what it does, what right-hand power does is it creates a vicious cycle of trying to hurt more, trying to oppress more, trying to accumulate more, never achieving enough. That's right-hand power. And in our passage today, we have a list of those in power along with a warning, valleys will be exalted and hills and mountains will be made low. Well, in much of history, you'll see that the ruling class often lives on hills, that's, that's often kind of how the world has worked. So the castles, large houses, capitals, temples, they're always up high and they look down on everything else. Now that's not quite as true in our modern world, but that's historically been true. In Mary's song, two chapters earlier, Mary says of God, he has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. So Luke is telling us here, there's a different kind of power than the right-hand power that right-hand power will be judged and will be revealed, and there's a different kind of power. Luther also spoke of left-hand power, something which was altogether different. Left-hand power is always self-giving. It's always out of love. It's not coercive. Left-hand power comes about through its loving, through its strength of character, through its faithfulness. It's the kind of power that can be born in a manger the kind of power that can say, turn the other cheek. It's the kind of power that tells Peter to put away his sword. That's left-hand power. It's different. So in the midst of a right-hand power world, God raises up a prophet who says, look away from me and look to the one who's coming. And yet John the Baptist even was broken like all of us he was not the one who brought redemption. He was the one who pointed to redemption. Like all of Israel, John longed for a political Messiah, one who would conquer Rome, one who would look more like right-hand power, who would put things the right way as he wanted them to be. Later in life from prison, John, we see wrestled with what Jesus was doing. Because politically and militarily, Jesus doesn't seem to be doing anything that would make any kind of headway to John. So John sends people to ask Jesus, are you really the one? Or should we be looking for somebody else? John struggles. He's like, I know I was supposed to point to you. Every fiber in my being showed me that I was supposed to point to you, but things aren't working out the way that I expected them to work out. You didn't become the kind of king that I expected you to become. And I think all of us wrestle with that. We follow in the way of Jesus and sometimes we do that out of a desire for, well, maybe this will help me be more prosperous <laughs> or maybe this will help me just have six steps to a better life or maybe this is gonna help me just make better friends or, or whatever it is. Not that all of those are bad, but the way of Jesus is so countercultural, It's so counterintuitive that sometimes we doubt when it doesn't all work out the way that we thought it would. Jesus's response to John says this, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. In other words, Jesus's response is, look at what I'm doing. Does that look like God? Does that look like the way of God? People are being restored. The lowly are being uplifted. The crooked is being made straight. Wrongs are righted. Does that look like God to you? Here, Jesus is calling John to repentance. John had been the one that said, repent, prepare the way for the Lord. And here, Jesus in his response calls John to reveal his motives, to reveal his heart. He calls John to remember who God is, not just who he wants him to be. Here's one more thing that even complicates things more. As we are called to repent, we are actually incapable of repenting on our own, (laughs) even repenting on our own. (laughs) Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said that the end of all preparation of the way of Christ must lie precisely in perceiving that we ourselves can never prepare the way. He is the only one who can prepare the way for his coming. And yet he invites us to participate in that. So this is not a simple story as we talk about repentance where we go, see what you did wrong, fix it. That's why those people that stand on street corners with signs that say, repent, they're just not helpful. (laughs) It's just, that never works. Just telling people, hey, fix it, you're wrong, do this. It just never works because repentance is not just a switch that gets flipped. It is this process of recognizing that all these false things that we've held onto are incomplete. They slip through our grasp, they're not real. And that process of coming to the end of ourselves and recognizing our own empty handedness and surrendering to God. In closing, um, there's a couple questions for us here in the second week of Advent that I want us to ask. The first one is what might repentance look like for you in this season? What might repentance look like for you in this season? The word repent is the word metanoia and it's not just being sorry. I don't know if you've ever had somebody uh, like when Lucy gets in trouble and she does something that we ask her not to do. And and we say we need you to apologize to say that you're sorry. We're hoping that she admits that she's wrong and she changes direction, right? And yet usually it's sorry, right? Sorry, you know, this anger. But repentance is not that sense of just saying sorry. It's the sense of a complete life reorientation complete and full change. And we do this only in the light of the love of Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Where do I in my life need leveling? Am I open to that? Am I open to the refiner's fire? Am I open to a drastic recalibration? Am I open to the radical love of God to embrace me just as I am and to begin to make me whole? Perhaps this means, and I think it means for all of us, letting somebody else into your life, <laughs> letting somebody who's safe, who's part of your community, know the stuff that's going on with you, the stuff that you know that you need to repent of. We can't do this alone, guys. This is not something that we can just go, yeah, I can fix that I can do that all by myself. We need each other. Repentance is communal. It's part of life and saying, I'm broken and I need help. Have you noticed that when we confess our sin every Sunday at the beginning of our services, we don't even let a second pass before we proclaim forgiveness? Because confession of sin is not about sitting there and just wallowing in our sin. It's recognizing that there is one who heals us, who makes us whole. So we proclaim forgiveness. Our God is the forgiving God and the healing God. So that first question, what might repentance look like for you in this season? What might repentance look like for you in this season? Then the second one is, what might it look like to embody this left-hand power? What might it look like to embody this left-hand power? In what ways is God opening us up to self-giving in this season? Self-giving, when it's at its best, can can move us towards this kind of posture, this kind of left-handed power. And yes, we always talk a lot about how much people spend around Christmas, like how much they um, spend on gifts and on you know uh, materialistic kind of things. But, but it's true also that in our culture, people give a lot more during this season than any other time of the year. And that self-giving that people kind of feel in their heart, I should be giving something. I, I, I should be part of something bigger than myself. I, I ought to offer myself. That rumors this left-handed power, this pointing away from ourselves. Some of you may be called to some radical steps of self-giving in this time. You might go, man, God is calling me to do something I never would have wanted to do beyond myself. But others of us, it might just be some small areas of stretching, of moving, of pointing away from ourselves and towards God and others. Those of you who know Ashley and I, you know that we express our faith in pretty different ways, each of us. Um, that's part of what makes us work. <laughs> that's part of what has strengthened our relationship. We are different. We challenge each other a lot. Um, I am a lot more openly expressive with my faith that kind of goes along with my job and also with my personality, okay? I just am naturally, I've always been that way, very very expressive with my faith and kind of who I am. Um, Ashley has a very deep faith. And you might not always see that because she doesn't wear it, on her sleeve as much as I do all the time. But Ashley's faith is less tied to performance. (laughs) It's less tied to uh, expressing it to other people in that outward way. She's not a Christian because she's a pastor's wife. In fact, if you talk to her, she never wanted to be a pastor's wife. I met somebody the other day. It was a little bit awkward that um, they hadn't been to church in a long time. And I told him I was a pastor. And she said, as a little girl, I always wanted to marry a pastor. What do you say to that? You go, okay, great. That's nice. Um, Ashley was not that way. <laughs> she did not. In fact, when, you may have heard this story, but when she told her mom she was dating a pastor, her mom kind of freaked out. And she said, um, do we need to get you like piano lessons or something? She thought that pastor's wives always played the piano. It's a different generation. Um, but Ashley's anchored. She doesn't always wear it on her sleeve. Ashley's faith is anchored. Um, I know a lot of people, I meet a lot of people who struggle with the intellectual claims of Christianity. And we talk to lots of people and I think part of our calling as a church is to meet people in the midst of that wrestling. And I've met a lot of people who struggle with the intellectual claims of Christianity and yet still feel an affection for Christianity, for their faith. They still emotionally kind of engage or culturally kind of engage with their faith. Ashley is actually kind of the opposite. She tends towards the opposite. She's a deeply convicted Christian for whom's the, whom the affection and the feelings aren't always the feeling the same way. Um, she's given me permission to say all of this, by the way. I'm not springing on this. Um, and part of this is Ashley's struggle with outward displays of religiosity over the years. We've gone to a bunch of different churches. Ashley grew up in a variety of different church styles and, uh, and has seen a lot of expressions, outward expressions that are not genuine. Okay. So she struggles with, is this expression genuine? Is this real? And that's always been so helpful to me. For example, I've had to get used to the fact that Ashley does not like listening to sermons at all. You know, that thing I prepare for all week and it's part of my life and kind of part of what I do. She doesn't like sermons very much. Okay. And there's nothing wrong with that. And that's been helpful to me. She's constantly challenging me about why we do certain things around here, whether my heart is in the right place in everything that I do. And then she displays the fruit of the spirit in her life in ways that floor me. I've got a purpose in this, okay? This week she inspired me in a bunch of different ways, but one of them was this. One of our friends who runs a local nonprofit was um, posting requests for children in Nashville who will not receive gifts this Christmas in the school system and asking if anyone could help. Sometimes around this time, I get a little bit overwhelmed with all these requests for need. And so I sometimes can tend to back away. I'm admitting that today. But I actually saw that there was a five-year-old girl who wants for Christmas, Barbies, art supplies and slime, okay? Her favorite colors are pink and purple. That sounds just like our Lucy, okay? So we have already planned out our Christmas budget for the year, but Ashley came to me and said, "Um, I had an idea, I feel like maybe we could forego Christmas presents for each other, for the two of us this year, and take Lucy and shop for this little girl, okay? Um, Now the Sharps are very blessed, especially at Christmas time. Lucy has a lot of grandparents and who spoil her too much and our families bless us a lot and Christmas is a big deal to our family. So we're always like more than fine, you know, we're more than blessed. But I will be honest, when Ashley said this, we are repenting today, I initially had a defensive response, okay? It was not that I was greedy or had to have the presence or whatever, but, but just feeling pressured. Oh, we have to do something with this? Is this something that we feel pressured into doing or that we have to do? But it took me a few seconds. But after a few seconds, it was obvious that this is what she's embodying here <laughs> is this self-giving love, right? This outward expression of self-giving love. And also, I didn't give Lucy enough credit in this whole thing. I I thought that we'd go and tell her about all these things this little girl would want and Lucy would go, well, I want all that stuff too. We'd go to the store and do all this. But Lucy, Ashley, uh, we shared with her about this little girl and said, she doesn't have Christmas presents and this is what she's asked for and it's very similar to what you do. Would you wanna help us shop for her? And Lucy like lit up (laughs) and she was like, of course, I know exactly what to get her, (laughs) right? Um, I know these things are really small, but I wanted today to kind of point to you here and in other ways that um, God gives us these opportunities to embody self-giving love, to stretch ourselves, to point away from ourselves. And this season often uh, rumors that. God is doing something in the sharps this Advent. He's shining light on false motivations, on defensiveness, on self-centeredness and inviting us to prepare our hearts for his coming and his presence. And remember that our life in God, most often as Christians, is hidden. It's small things. It's the unseen work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. In our Philippians text, Paul prays for the church at Philippi and he says, in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident in this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Now notice that it's God who begins the work in them and in us, it is God who continues the work in them and in us, and it is God who completes the work. Paul is praying for the church knowing that each of them and each of us has received a deposit of his future in the world through the Holy Spirit in our hearts. God has done this profound thing through the cross and the resurrection and by the spirit, he's with us now and we long and we anticipate for that future day when his work will be completed and all will be made right. So our prayer today is keep going, keep moving. He will be faithful in you. He will complete his work. God has come near. God is with us and God will complete that work, amen, amen. Lord, we thank you for your work in our lives. We thank you for the call to wake up, the call to repent that is out of your great love, that you call us because the things that we go towards, the things that we move forward towards, the counterfeits, they're just empty, they just lead to destruction. So Lord, thank you for the opportunity to, to wake us up. Lord, today, I pray that um, as you awaken our hearts and as you awaken our lives, that you would lead us to embody that left-hand power, that power that's based on love for the world. As we see brokenness in our world, as we see things that aren't right, that, that we are called to participate, not just through our own creativity or ingenuity, but with you and with your spirit to join in. We trust you, Lord, and we praise you for your ongoing work in Jesus' name. Amen.